We'll take your copy of God's Word. It's always a privilege just to say that, isn't it? We own a copy of God's Word. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I'm alarmed at the speed, at least it feels like to me, that we are finding our way through the gospel of Mark. These are larger sections that really demand focused attention on the macro and the micro, the big picture and the details. And it's always a judgment call how deep to go and how how fast to go. Do we use a snorkel or do we use a scuba tank? And I feel compelled sometimes to do either or both. So Mark chapter 6, this is an incredible story. And I think you're going to find that it has some interesting twists in it that really draw us to see the Savior in ways that you might not notice at first glance. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished. Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph or Joseph? And Judas, or Judah, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. After I was recently converted in high school... There was a gentleman in the church who took it upon himself to help me grow. I will forever be indebted to this man. Please become this man, become this woman. He began feeding me a steady diet of good books. And I remember what he said. Rick, if you're gonna grow as a Christian, you're going to have to learn to love to read. He didn't say learn to read, learn to love to read. You know, I often think of that moment, and I I walk in my library that God has blessed me to build over the last decades, and sometimes I look at my books on my shelf in my library, and if my dad were alive today and were walking in my office, he would look and say, there is a God. (laughs) This guy who cared more about sports and and playing around than he did uh, reading or studying now loves to read. One of those books that this man gave me was a book by Josh McDowell. You'll recognize the title from the title of our message today. And the title was More Than a Carpenter. 
It was an evidential apologetic, if you're into knowing what that means. It based evidences uh, to look at the reality of Jesus. And it, it was basically saying, if, is this just a carpenter? Is this just a man? The, the premise of that book, the premise of that question, the premise of, of the statement that Jesus is more than a carpenter, carpenter comes from this passage before us. Chapter 6 in Mark's gospel marks a distinct change. It's a detour into a dark room in Mark's argument. Let's get some speed up, a running start. Jesus has healed countless unspecified diseases, known diseases, leprosy and illness. He healed Peter's mother-in-law from a disease. He healed and cleansed lepers from both their sin and their condition. Instantaneously healed a paralyzed man, taught with unparalleled authority and insight, commanded a violent storm to immediately cease, cast out many demons, many out of one man, drove a herd of pigs, demon-infested, into a lake and drowned, healed a woman with a 12-year hemorrhage, raises a girl, a 12-year-old girl from the dead. He's now called 12 disciples, garnered a group of other disciples, and the accent so far in Mark has been lots of faith and very little, though some, very little resistance. Everything changes now. And the hourglass turns over and the sand starts rushing out of the top chamber toward the cross. Why would anyone have issues with Jesus? Ever thought about that? Why would anyone have problems with a man who can heal every disease, raise the dead, and forgive sin? Why would anyone have any trouble with that? Well, it comes in this Greek word exousia, authority. Jesus actually stood in the synagogue after synagogue after synagogue with authority that they had seen the likes of nowhere else and in no other man. How can this man teach like this? More people than not disbelieve the gospel than do. Jesus taught this explicitly in the parable of the soils where he quoted Isaiah, where Isaiah, Isaiah 6 says, only a tenth will, Isaiah, you're gonna preach, only a tenth will turn. Here are four soils. Only one of the soils will be responsive in a, in a real salvific way. He wasn't teaching percentages. He was teaching, though, this very important principle don't be surprised. Disciples, followers, and you and me, don't be surprised. Don't be disillusioned. Don't be overwhelmed when more people disbelieve than do believe. Don't be surprised. How can we possibly wrap our minds around people who wouldn't believe in Jesus who would say no to the forgiveness of sins, no to eternal life with God in heaven, no to the love of God, no to guidance and counsel and hope and joy and happiness, who would say no to the resurrection from the dead. How do we 
properly understand unbelief, disbelief. How can we possibly wrap our minds around it? Mark, through the narrative of Jesus, tells us exactly how to understand and process unbelief in this passage. Remember, he's continuing to, Mark is, continuing to equip the followers, his readers of Christ, equip you and me to be faithful in a hostile world to the gospel. And an important part of this sending out of the disciples into the world, which by the way happens in the next paragraph, is to train them and to train us how to process and think through unbelief. How not to be discouraged Chapter six begins with describing the disastrous marks of unbelief. Think about this. Then he commissions the 12 who would go out into a world of disbelief and he tells them how to respond to that. And then he goes to the consequence of John the Baptist's faithfulness and tells us how unbelief ultimately cost him his life. Yeah, chapter six starts getting dark. But it has to be dark to head to the cross for the, to be the light of the resurrection. <coughs> now, the key to most of the preceding miracles has been this word that we've talked about in noun form and in verb form, pistuo or pistis. It just means faith, to believe. And that's been the accent. Believe, believe, believe. He even told Jairus, you need to believe. You've already believed. Keep on believing. He honored the woman with the hemorrhage by, by healing her because of her belief, her faith. But what's to be expected for the followers of Jesus who encounter faithless people where faith is absent? Think about this. The people of Nazareth where Jesus grew up, that was his hometown, they respond in drastic difference to the preceding contexts. Jesus has been north and around the lake about 40 miles ministering around uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is a giant lake, 13 by 7 miles. This story, I got to tell you, this is a raw story, authentic. Anyone who would ever try to fake the Bible would not include this story. Even though miracles were convincing to many that the the kingdom of God was indeed near that Jesus had announced, that John the Baptist had announced. Not everyone was convinced. And when you follow the, the synoptics, remember there's two kinds of gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic. They, they cover the life of Jesus. John is more of a theological treatise that summarizes and coalesces and is a confluence of those gospels. When you compare the, <coughs> the three synoptics, you see an interesting progression where the longer Jesus goes, the kinder Jesus is, the more Jesus demonstrates his deity, the more people disbelieve. All the way to the point where at the end of his life, they will at the first of the week try to install him as king and at the last, the final part of the week, ask for someone to be delivered to them who had murdered instead of Jesus and let him be executed. He comes back the final time. I mean, this is almost a tearful moment. This is his final time he will come back to his hometown 
and it is anything but a welcoming homecoming for the Lord. One of the most interesting parts, by the way, of the, the background of this narrative is the glimpse that we see into Jesus' family and the friends that he grew up with. If anyone knew this man named Jesus, it was the residents of Nazareth. Look back for a moment at chapter three. I, I want you to kind of stitch these together. In chapter three, verse 21, well, back up to verse 20, he came home, the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Verse 21, when his own people, that's his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he's lost his senses. Look at verse 31. Then his mother, sweet Mary, his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word and called to him, basically saying what the others had said. He's lost his mind. Let's just take him home. Think about that. His own family, his brothers, and as we'll see in a minute, sisters, at least two, looked at him as nothing other than a nice guy who became a miracle worker, who became completely misunderstood. Neither his mother or family rightly understood Jesus or Jesus' mission. By the way, later his brother James would one day believe and lead the Jerusalem church. Jude would believe and become a leader and his mother would follow him to the cross, be with the, upper, the disciples in the upper room, see the resurrected Jesus and stand there and watch him ascend. Well, we've talked about this being a dark room. Let's, 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 let's go in here together. Three disastrous marks of unbelief, if you want an outline. Three disastrous marks of unbelief. Belief. These are helpful indicators for you and I to have a worldview that understands disbelief and unbelief. Three disastrous marks of unbelief. The first is in verses one to two. Unbelief ignores the evidence of Jesus' divinity. Unbelief ignores, overlooks the evidences, and there are, it's plural because there were many, of Jesus' divinity. Verse one. Jesus went out from there. Remember, he's gone uh, from Capernaum where he had healed Jairus' daughter. From, well, he raised her from the dead, healed the woman. He leaves there, out from there, and he comes south, about 40 miles southwest to his hometown from Capernaum to Nazareth, a hilly, windy path. He would have walked, most say, in a day, probably in a little better shape than you and me. Now, who knows if he stopped along the way or performed miracles, but he goes southwest. He goes home. And his disciples followed him. He takes them back to his hometown, which sounds like it would be kind of fun if you're, if you're somewhere else and you bring your friends home to Kansas City. I'm going to take you to my favorite barbecue. I'm going to take you down to, to see the World War I Museum, all this thing. I want to take you home. That's not what happens here. This text, now, we have to pull the car over for a minute. 
this text immediately introduces us to a problem of, big word, synoptic harmonization. I want you to learn that because it's not a big concept at all. Synoptic harmonization. How do you line these stories up between Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Especially when there seems to be stuff left out in one and added in another. How do you line it up? By the way, if you want an excellent book, I would tell you run, don't walk, pay almost any price for Thomas and Gundry, uh, Harmony of the Gospels. It is, I would pay whatever the book's worth 10 times over for the footnotes. A Harmony of the Gospels by Thomas and Gundry. Very helpful in putting these stories uh, beside each other and aligning them in a chronology of Christ's life and ministry. Here's the question. This is obviously a parallel of the events that Matthew talks about in Matthew 13, 5, uh, 53 to 58, which is right after the soils. This happens with the healing of this, this uh, woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter. It's perfectly in line with Matthew 13. Makes sense. The question, though, is whether or not Luke chapter 4 is the same occasion. Here's the problem. Luke 4 is early in Jesus' ministry. Mark 6 is at least a year later and later in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So did Luke just get things messed up? Now, if you know anything about Luke, do you think Luke messed up? He is systematic, chronological, painstakingly detailed. Now, if you want to know what that is, actually, I wanted to ask you to turn over to Luke chapter 4. Because we have to ask, is this the same event as Luke is describing? <coughs> Let me give you an advance notice while you're turning there. I don't think so. I think Jesus is coming back to Nazareth after this event, a year plus later, which demonstrates a whole host of character qualities about the Lord and his saving heart. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Let me just tell you, by the way, this is a weird passage. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will by the end. This is different. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release, release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, literally he, he wound up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. And he said, truly, I say to you, a prophet is welcome. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And all of the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. And they drove him, and they got up, drove him out of the city, led him over to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. What is this? What is this? Now, I have been to this area. Uh, I, I, I've taken a tour of, of Nazareth. It is a bowl inside of hills. It's very um, treacherous when you get up on some parts of the hill. Jesus teaches. They take him out. They're not happy with what he said, basically indicting them and their own disbelief. They take him up to the brow of a hill, and they're gonna throw him over. But, verse 30, passing through their midst, he went his way. I don't have an explanation. This is a gang taking him, probably physically grabbing him, taking him up to a cliff to throw him off. But passing through their midst, he should walk through them. Did he disappear? I don't know. Did he say, I am, and they fell over? I don't know. But he just walks away. Let me say that it's difficult to be dogmatic about whether this one, this event is the one we're talking about in Mark, except to say, I don't think Luke got his chronology wrong, nor Matthew or Mark, I think this happened a year plus ago, which makes this scene in Mark 6 all the more dramatic. He returns out of his grace to give them another chance. He returns out of, a, out of his courage and bravery. Would you want to go back and minister to people who just wanted to kill you a year earlier? Back to Mark 6. After resurrecting Jairus' daughter, Jesus now takes his disciples, travels to the hill country to Nazareth where he grew up. By the way, even though verse one doesn't say Nazareth, Mark has already told us that was his hometown in chapter one, verse 24. Significant because in verse three, we find out that Jesus' half-brothers and sisters are still there living in Nazareth. It's also important that Jesus has his disciples with him because he's continuing his training to send them out in pairs, which will happen in verse seven. Now imagine the scene. Jesus, the rumors are everywhere about what he's been doing. It's hard not to imagine that the rumor he just raised a girl from the dead has quickly preceded him there in Nazareth. Stories had been circulating. The kid who grew up there comes home. Get this. As a rabbi. The carpenter kid 
comes home as a teacher, a rabbi. What do rabbis do? Verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. <coughs> now, Jesus taught. He taught everywhere. He taught anywhere there would a crowd, a crowd would assemble. But he taught specifically in the synagogue. And that speaks so much to the fact, as we learned from Isaiah and when he was 12 years old, of expository ministry. He would read the scripture and explain the scripture. This trip to Nazareth is about a year after that incredible event where they tried to murder him. Unthinkably <laughs> taking him to the precipice of a cliff and threatening to throw him off. That's the situation that Jesus walks back to. And, excuse me, <coughs> many listeners were astonished. So we're, we're in the synagogue. This is the church service as it was. Many were astonished saying, where? The Greek is, is emphatic. Where did this guy, where did this man, where did this fellow that we know, where did he get these things? What is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? The questions about the source of Jesus' wisdom, the source of his teaching, the source of his authority, the source of his power was now being come, become, had become their their apologetic, if we can figure that out, maybe we'll believe. If we can't, we won't. This is God just, he grew up down the street and he's raising little girls from the dead. He's casting out demons. He's performing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's making paralyzed people stand. These people knew, by the way, that Jesus did not grow up studying with a rabbi. If anyone were to ask this question honestly and legitimately, it was them. They knew, are you ready for this, that Jesus didn't go to seminary. He had no formal rabbinic training. Can I just, a little footnote. Seminary, a godly man does not guarantee, a little bit said like Yoda would say it, Just going to seminary doesn't make you a godly man. And the absence of seminary does not in any way preclude a man from ministry. By the way, this will be the last reference Mark will make to Jesus teaching in a synagogue. From here out in Mark, he only teaches in houses and in the fields. I think it becomes the source and the symbol of rejection. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, we'll see Jesus begins to teach in houses, but not in the synagogue anymore. Why? Because the synagogue officials are the ones who have this rumor mill spreading this plot that he's not worthy to be heard and suspicious. Now back up a little bit. What's going on here? They just could not believe that this hometown boy grew up to be the miracle-working expert teacher, self-announced son of God, initiator of the kingdom of God. And this is a guy who grew up, you know, down on 3rd Street. Jesus had demonstrated over and over and over and over again the power and the 
the, the evidence for his, his divinity, that he was not just a man. And they ignored it. People still do the same today. And that's really completely attached to the next disastrous mark of unbelief. Unbelief ignores the evidences of Jesus' divinity. They'd seen it, they'd heard it, they ignored it. Secondly, unbelief stumbles over the specifics of Jesus' humanity. Unbelief stumbles over the specifics of Jesus' humanity. The reason I say stumble, if you look at the end of verse 3, it says they took offense at him. That's the Greek word scandalon. It means to trip over. They, they tripped over. They, they, they couldn't process the specifics of Jesus' humanity. How do we know that? Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? They're talking to themselves. The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense. They tripped over. They stumbled over him. By the way, two questions. Where is Mary and where is Joseph in this scene? They're not there. I, I don't have an answer. But I'm just curious. I wonder where they were. Experts tell us that it's likely that Joseph is dead by now. <coughs> and it's unlikely that Mary is there in the, in the room where she would have been referenced. Just a curiosity. These people in the synagogue ask a rhetorical question. Wait a minute. Isn't this just that, that carpenter kid? Matthew says it like this, Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? You know what this is? Folks, this is heckling. They're heckling him. They're pestering him. They're interrupting him. Do you know who this is? We do. We went to junior high together. It's intended to be derogatory. It's not this the carpenter? Now we can spend a lot of time on carpenter. There's been a lot of, a lot of ink spilt on what that means. It can mean mason. It can be, mean carpenter. It literally has the idea of, of an architect. You're putting things together with your hands. And if you worked with wood, you no doubt worked with stone in that time. If you worked with stone, you no doubt worked with wood during that time. So he was a, a carpenter mason likely. Ordinary craftsman. What they're saying is, is not he just a commoner, an ordinary craftsman like the rest of us are? Who does this guy think he is? Oh, then there's the phrase. Look at this phrase. The son of Mary. It was the custom of man to be called the son of his father. Matthew does that in Matthew 13. This likely meant that Joseph had died, but I actually think they're probably saying that here in, in, in reference to Jesus' spurious background. The rumors that existed to that day, isn't this the son of that woman who was pregnant before she was married? Highlighting that they thought he was illegitimate. You know that John, in John 8, highlights this same issue. You know, we know who our father was, you don't. Derogatory, mocking, 
heckling. By the way, this question does show that the people know that Jesus know who he was, they know his upbringing, they know where he lived, nothing about him pointed, interestingly enough, to being the prophet as he grew up in, a, in an obvious way. Don't miss this, such a sweet lesson here. Jesus grew up living out exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, verse five and following. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be, we say grass, literally shown off, He grew up God in flesh and didn't flex the divine muscles for them to see. And the point of Paul in marking that is his humility. Along with Mary, by the way, mention is made of Jesus' brothers and sisters. The sisters are unnamed, um, which according to the Jewish laws and custom, meant that they were probably married. They would have been known by their husband's name, but they were there, and Mark makes notice of that. There's James and Joseph, or Joseph, Judas, or Jude, and Simon. James later is the head of the Jerusalem church. Jude is uh, uh, mentioned later in the book of Acts. I, I can't resist saying by the mid-second century, the church began circulating the idea that Jesus' mother was perpetually virgin. Began reinterpreting this passage to say, well, that was Joseph's children from a previous marriage, but the text doesn't say that. The plain reading of this is that Joseph and Mary came together and had Jesus' siblings Jesus was the oldest of five brothers and at least two sisters, all of whom were natural born children of Joseph and Mary. Another proof against the Roman doctrine, Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Verse four, Jesus says to them, this is a strange proverb he brings up. A prophet is not without honor. Notice the double negative, it's important. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own household. Mark's, I think, is foreshadowing in a very specific way. Jesus' ultimate rejection, giving a bit of an explanation on how the Jews and Jesus' own people, his own family, rejected the Messiah here, and ultimately the whole nation would. He says this proverb, a prophet is not welcome or not without honor, except in his hometown. So double negative. Some translations try to smooth it out. The, the NEB says, a prophet will always be held in honor. Another, the prophet is honored everywhere except. But the double negative is more emphatic. Then he says, a prophet is not without honor, except, and this is where a prophet should be honored most. His hometown, his relatives, his own household. Uh, Concentric circles that keep getting tighter. The neighborhood and the village ought to understand him. The aunts, uncles, cousins, the brothers and sisters, and none of them did, except we do know that there was one aunt and at least one cousin during his lifetime who believed him. You remember who they were? Aunt and uncle, I should say. Elizabeth and Zacharias and John the Baptist they got the message early on. 
By the way, all these are true in the context. He wasn't welcome in his hometown. He wasn't honored among his relatives. He wasn't even recognized in his own household. He was without honor in the places he should have had honor. And the text says that they stumbled. They stumbled. They took offense at him. They couldn't get over the fact that he was just another carpenter. Can we put that in today's language? Oh, he was a great man. Islam, Jesus was a great prophet, just not God incarnate and not the savior of the world. Jesus' humanity still makes some people stumble over his true identity. Unbelief ignores the evidence of Jesus' deity. Unbelief stumbles over the specifics of Jesus' humanity. And thirdly, a third disastrous mark of unbelief, unbelief squanders the window of salvation's opportunity. This is so sad. Unbelief squanders the window of salvation's opportunity. Verse five. Another grossly misinterpreted text by some, and he could do no miracle there. Stop right there. Does that mean it was an ability? Could he, did he really not have any ability to do miracles there? No, we already found out. He did some there. This just means he was unwilling to give them the blessing, listen, of enjoying his benefits without understanding his identity. Does that not sound like so much of what's going on in the church? Oh, we want the benefits of Jesus, just not to bow the knee in humble submission to his authority. Oh, Jesus could have performed miracles. He did some. The text already told us. But why bless those who reject? Why bless the rejecters? I think of that in my own life, how easy it is to want the blessing of Jesus when I need it most and forget the honor of Jesus when I don't recognize my need. Then verse six. He was amazed. He wondered at their unbelief. This word for marvel or amazed is used 30 times in the gospel. Only three of them are used in reference to Jesus being amazed. And two of those describe the same event of Jesus' amazement at the centurion's faith. Matthew 8, 10, Luke 7, 9. But here in Mark 6, 6, it's used with this reference to unbelief. He was amazed that they would not believe. I think he's still amazed that given the biblical evidence about who he is and what he did for the sins of those who would believe and the rejection of Jesus as presented on the pages of scripture still amazes him. And then some people don't attach this to this passage. They put it with the next. I think it strongly belongs to these six verses. And he was going around the villages teaching. In other words, he was undeterred by unbelief. He's instructing the disciples, wait till next week where he basically says, you're gonna go and here's what happens when they reject you and reject me. 
Shake the dust off your feet, move on. Just keep being faithful in the next place. He is doing exactly what he's about to command the disciples to do. He was rejected, he saw unbelief, he was amazed, but he kept being faithful and kept giving the message. Just an encouragement, don't be discouraged from faithfulness and sharing the gospel just because you don't see a lot of fruit. Jeremiah preached for 40 years without a recognized convert. Don't be discouraged. What are the implications? <clears throat> In just a moment, we're gonna partake of the Lord's table. These implications just sink my own heart and encourage me at the same time. First of all, the unbelief in Nazareth didn't discourage or stop Jesus from preaching. When people don't believe, disbelieve, will not believe your message and gospel presentation, don't let that discourage you. Don't give up. Don't give up. We'll see next week. Just go to the next person. Secondly, don't, don't be surprised by doubt don't be surprised by doubt. I think specifically of, even though Mary's not mentioned as being there, James, his brother, he doubted his whole life likely, but in the end believed the gospel. Don't be surprised. Mary, she thought he was crazy at one point. Chapter three. Don't be surprised when you have doubts. All our doubts can be resolved in the person of Christ though. If you have a doubt, don't think, well, I lost my salvation or I was never saved because I have these doubts. Maybe sometimes doubting is the best way to prove that you really do believe because doubting bothers you. If doubting doesn't bother you, that's a bad sign. If doubting bothers you, that's a really good sign. It's hard to live by faith and not by sight. Jesus understands that. And the testimony of scripture is that John the Baptist, as we'll see in two weeks, goes all the way to the end of his life and he's about to be beheaded and he says, I believe without a doubt. No, he says, you are who I think you are, aren't you? Don't be surprised by doubt. Answer it with the person of Christ. And I think what we understand here is unbelief also, thirdly, blocks the extended hand of God. It's hard to believe that, that people have that kind of prerogative or power but this is clear, unbelief blocks the extended hand of God. It's the sin of all sins for which there is no forgiveness. Someone has said it like this, unbelief makes it impossible for God to give. Wow. Unbelief cuts off the branch attached to the tree that you're sitting on. Unbelief breaks the thin ice you're standing on. Unbelief incurs a debt you can never pay. Unbelief ties a knot in the oxygen line when you're trapped on the bottom of the ocean and it's your only way to breathe. Unbelief cuts you off from everything. I think Jesus was probably a pretty good carpenter. It's hard to imagine that he would have done shoddy work. But was he more than that? Was he more than just a carpenter? That's all they concluded. What is your conclusion about the identity of Christ? How you answer that question, listen, 
How you answer who is Jesus determines your eternity. You need to have an answer. 